evening, and uh, thanks for joining us out there. Um, we're, we're glad that you're watching, and uh, uh, glad that you're here with us um, as we're studying the scriptures together. And I just want you to know, I feel very privileged to be able to share the message with you today. So uh, we're going to be digging into Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you may want to grab that and turn there, and uh, we'll get started into the evening. Well, it's been said that the greatest argument for the validity of the Christian faith are the lives of those who are followers of Jesus. And I think that that's really true. Guess what the best argument is against the validity of the Christian faith? The lives of the followers of Jesus themselves as well. It's kind of a weird deal, but whether one way or the other, we have tremendous impact upon what people feel about the Christian faith itself. And one of the primary reasons that people reject Christianity as a way of life happens to be simply the perceived or sometimes even real failures of those who are followers of Jesus. You don't have to look very far into history to think about that. Things like the Inquisition, the Crusades, uh, the Salem witch trials. You can look at what's happening in the Catholic Church today among its, its priests. And, uh, and you see all of those different things that are happening. It's kind of a difficult thing. I sometimes look at Facebook, and you know what surprises me? It surprises me to see the vitriol that some people who I actually know who are followers of Jesus, the kind of language they use against politicians, against the system, against other people, it's an amazing thing. And I think it's one of the primary reasons that people sometimes just say, I don't want to have anything to do with the Christian faith. In addition, there's something else that happens. It shrinks our own hearts to a certain extent. It retards our spiritual growth. It, it makes it impossible for us to keep moving forward in our lives. And sometimes we're our own worst enemy. We live with dysfunctional habit patterns. We, uh, we think about how we're um, living our lives in other kinds of ways that are dishonoring to Jesus. All those different things happen to us, and, and we're not immune from that. But I ask myself this question all the time. Do I really want to be known for that? Do I want to be known for the failures I have at dishonoring Christ or not living consistently or congruently with what Jesus would have me to live? I think about those things in my own life. And you know what? I don't want to be known for that. And I don't think you do either. And I really believe this, that God has designed something very, very different for us as his followers. So we are in part 11 of a series called Connecting to the Church and we've been tracking through the book of Ephesians as we're studying this idea of connecting to the church. And I want to just bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us for a while or maybe you haven't uh, been, been following along. But what we've been looking at is in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, God is, is ushering in a new kind of reordering of the universe. And the church is his primary agent for that reordering. How is the church comprised? Well, chapter 2 begins to tell us that the church is made up of raw materials, and those raw materials are the individual lives of people who've been transformed by the love of Jesus. They've been changed. They've been reclaimed. They've been restored. And so these are the raw materials. And then God does something with the raw materials. He brings them and he connects them together into a family, a spiritual family, a new community of people, a radically inclusive community. And in chapter 3, Paul talks about the, the, the role that he had in that particular radically inclusive community, what God wanted him to do. And he talks about the mission of that community to the world. But in chapter 4, Paul kind of takes a little bit of a turn. And he moves from what's theory, so to speak, and he moves into that which is very, very practical, what really will make a difference in everyday life. 
And he starts talking about the, the alternative lifestyle. And when I use that word, I'm not thinking about how people use that today. A whole different kind of lifestyle from the way the world operates. A different way of living. And he does this by using the word walk. So at the beginning in chapter 4, even starting in verse 1, we begin to see that. Paul will give five different dominating commands in chapters 4 through 5. And he's, each one, he's going to use the word to walk. So in chapter 1, verse 4, he says that we are to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. In 5.2, he says we're to walk in love. In 5.8, he says walk as children of light. In 5.15, he says walk as wise people, those who are constantly under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This community will have an alternative kind of mission in the world. They would offer a different kind of community from that which the world would offer. They will evidence a different kind of solidarity a different kind of appreciation for diversity in their midst. They would have an alternative picture of maturity that Pastor Cliff and Pastor Ryan presented to us last week in the passage just before this one. But in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul comes to the very second of his imperatives, his commands to walk. And we find that in 4.17. And it's the only negative command. All the other ones are positive. This one is negative. And Paul begins in verse 17 of chapter 4, saying this. He says, Now I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. Paul just gives a very clear command, that you should no longer walk as the Gentiles. Now when Paul uses this term Gentiles, he's using it as a metaphor for people who are very far away from God. People who are not followers of Jesus. People who have been disconnected from the very life of God. And the idea behind this is simply they are people who are very, very far away from God. And he says to them very, uh, very clearly here, I want to address something with you. I don't want you to live that way anymore. And Paul's going to begin to look at the moral dimension of the lives of those who are followers of Jesus. So what I want to do is I'm going to read through this passage all the way through from verse 17 through 24 again, just to give us a kind of a, a flavor of it. And then I'm going to kind of drill down a little bit deeper and try to look at some things that I think are going to be important for us to look at today. So in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, Paul again says, Now I say, and I testify in the Lord, that is, Paul's being dead serious here, by the way. Whenever Paul uses phraseology like this, now I say to you, I testify to you in the Lord, it's like Paul saying like, hey, this is the gospel truth. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming you heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and being renewed in the spirit of your mind, to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, when you read this through, this is not difficult to understand. This is, uh, there's nothing tricky about the phraseology. There's nothing complicated that Paul's trying to draw our attention to. But Paul is trying to be very, very clear here. It's not rocket science. He's just simply say this, I don't want you to live like those who don't know God. Instead, I want you to live lives of moral 
excellence. And if you like to fill in the blank on your outline, here's the blank that you can fill in. Connecting the church means living a lifestyle, walking in a lifestyle of moral excellence. Moral excellence. So let's drill down a little bit deeper, and I want to reframe this if I can for you in a way that maybe it'll be easier to understand. I think what Paul is saying here in total is this. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Now, I know our culture today uses that phrase to mean something a little bit different than I'm meaning it in the message today. Normally, our culture just says, hey, stay in your own lane, which means stay out of my business, mind your own business, don't get all up in my business, stay in your own lane. But Paul's actually using this in a different kind of way. Stay in your lane. You might think about the 2019 Kentucky Derby. In the 2019 Kentucky Derby, something unprecedented took place. In 145 years of the Kentucky Derby, a winner of the Kentucky Derby had never been disqualified until 2019. In that race, Maximum Security, who's the lead horse, was coming down the final stretch and was in lane two and began to veer or drift off into the lane of two other horses, causing them to check their strides, nearly causing a catastrophic uh, accident on the racetrack. And as uh, coming around that final turn, Maximum Security ended up winning. Well, later they disqualified Maximum Security. Why? Because drifted out of his lane and into another lane. Paul is going to use this entire passage as a warning to those he is writing to, those who are his listeners. Stay in your lane. Drift happens to us, by the way. All of us can experience drift in our relationship with God. We can be on the right path, and all of a sudden, we can be on the wrong path. Kind of like when you're driving. You probably experience this, right? You're driving along. You're starting to maybe get a little bit drowsy. You're kind of in and out. You know what I mean. And, uh, and pretty soon, you're just like, you close your eyes, and pretty soon, you hear that bump, 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 bump. Yeah, the lane divider markers, right? They wake you up and kind of warn you. Well, that's what Paul's using this passage like. He's waking them up to the possibility of drift taking place. Now, Paul doesn't actually say that drift has taken place. He's not suggesting that they've already drifted off. But he does recognize the potential of drifting away. He does recognize that it's possible for people to drift away into a different lane. Paul understands the law of entropy that the natural tendency of things is to move from order into chaos and disarray and disorganization unless things are maintained. You probably know this very well. I mean, all you have to do is go to your own garage. You may have cleaned it out a few weeks ago or a couple months ago. You go back in, there's all kinds of stuff all over the place. Happens with my workbench. I can clean off my workbench, and pretty soon you can go back in two weeks later, it's a mess. Things have been put there. All kinds of stuff is there. You just throw stuff there. Or people who have a garden recognize the same thing. Gardens do not maintain themselves. Gardens have to, take, have to be intentionally maintained. Otherwise, you're going to have weeds growing up. You're going to have plants that are going to be competing with one another for sunshine and nutrients. So you have to manage what happens in that. Paul says our, simil- our, our spiritual lives are very, very similar and our moral lives as well. And Paul just simply wants to remind them and to remind us that we can prevent and arrest that kind of drift in our relationship with Christ. So 
Paul begins to remind them, and that's really what he does in this passage. And he clarifies two things here, the lane that they should not be in and then the lane that they should be in. He starts first with the negative, and then he moves to the positive. Negatively, Paul would simply say in that first set of verses, this is not your lane. This is the wrong lane to be in. Notice how he says it starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul simply says this, don't live like the Gentiles in the futility of their minds. That word futility is a very colorful word. It actually means a vacuum, a place of emptiness, a place where there's nothingness, so to speak. The wild goose chase of life. And the rest of this is just a further description of what futility looks like. And notice how it moves from, a few, from one point to another point in here. Paul moves from the inside to the outside, the outer behavior. First, he says it starts with ignorance. People just, they don't know. They don't understand. They don't know certain things about God. And then he says it moves to something else. It moves to willful disconnection. The idea behind this particular word is that it is both personal and very willful. It's not like, well, somehow they got disconnected. It is that they disconnected themselves from the very life of God. And they became darkened in their understanding. Then they become hard. Something happens. You stop listening to God. You stop being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You harden yourself up. You don't want to hear it anymore. And then comes capitulation. You just start giving in. You start giving yourself over to certain practices. And then finally, he says, that becomes an insatiability because you experience the law of diminishing returns. It just takes more and more and more to satisfy you. It just takes more stuff. And if you don't have that, you're afraid you're going to be missing out on something, right? We have a term for that these days, FOMO, fear of missing out. And if you think about it, FOMO was really, in a way, the very heart of the first human sin. The serpent comes to Eve in the garden, and he begins to speak to her and talk to her. And he says, oh, did God tell you that you shouldn't eat from any of the trees of the garden? And she says, well, we can eat from any tree of the garden, but we just can't eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent says, ah, that's because God knows that in the moment you eat from that, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, and you will know good and evil. And the woman begins to think to herself, I'm missing out. I'm missing out on something. That will always be at the very heart of sin. We'll always think that we need to have a little bit more and a little bit more, or we're going to be missing out on something. Paul says it moves from that ignorance to disconnection, hardening, capitulation, the law of diminishing returns and insatiability, afraid that we're going to be missing out. And we begin to walk in the wrong lane. Right? And I will tell you this, sin is like a curveball. It will always be down and away. If you watch curveballs in baseball, they are always down and away. That's where sin takes us. It diminishes us as human beings. It diminishes our capacity to love God. It stunts our spiritual growth. It shrinks our hearts. You can't do that. It will destroy you. 
And one of the things I was thinking about here is that when, we, when Paul's talking about these people who are Gentiles, we have to realize that, that they didn't have the same kind of benefits we have of living in a culture in which they'd had two millennia of Christian values, Christian thoughts, Christian beliefs. We live in a culture today where it's unimaginable that people wouldn't understand between, the difference between right and wrong, but they sometimes really don't. This came home to me uh, a few years ago while uh, I was a pastoring at another church, and uh, a woman came to see me one day. She walked in. She was a very attractive young lady. She sat down. We began to talk, and it was, it was evident that something was really different about her. She was radiant, and she began to tell me the story of how she'd been coming to church, and she'd found a relationship with Jesus Christ, and it was changing her. And as we did some talk and talked about where she needed to grow and what that would take, she I asked her, well, what do you do? And she said, well, I, I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm an entertainer at a gentleman's club. I'm a pole dancer. And my jaw just dropped. I was like, seriously? And while I wasn't shocked or judgmental about it with her, we began to talk about what it would take for her to, to move forward in her relationship with Christ. And, uh, and then she left. About a week later, she called me back, and she came in, and she said, I'm struggling with something. I said, okay, you know, what is it? She said, well, she said, I went back to work last week, and, uh, and I've been working all week. She has a three-year-old daughter. She's trying to put food on the table. And she said, I'm, I'm trying to wonder, is it okay that I continue to do the work that I'm doing and still be a follower of Jesus? And I, it, just, I, it was shocking to me. I, I just kept thinking, really? She does not understand that this might not be appropriate for someone who's a follower of Jesus? But she didn't. She was really clueless. And it was great because we began to talk about how she could move into a different kind of line of work and how she could honor God differently and what that would look like for her. But it, was, it floored me and I was really shocked to be in, she didn't really even understand what it meant to live a life of moral excellence. And that's what Paul is calling these followers to. So Paul wants to be really, really crystal clear and he's kind of like, it's almost like he's saying, this lane over here, this is not your lane. This is not the lane that you want to be in. And then Paul turns to the positive side of this, starting in verse 20 and 21 of Ephesians 4. He says, but that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul turns and he says, this is your lane. This is your lane. That's not how you learned Christ. You heard him. You learned him. You were taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. And it's great. When you read this in the original language, Paul is very emphatic with this. He says, you yourselves, but you yourselves did not learn Christ this way. And then he talks about their lives. He says, hey, uh, assuming that you knew Christ. And by the way, I, hate, I don't think this is a good translation. The ESV translation using the word assumed here makes it sound like, well, Maybe he wasn't unsure whether they were Christians or not. No, Paul uses what we call a first-class condition in Greek. And really what he's saying, and you should just replace the word assumed with the word since. So it would read like this. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Since you heard him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. He talks about their initial response. You heard Jesus. And then secondly, that they had been discipled and developed in the Christian faith already. You had been taught in this. And I got to thinking about what it means to live a life of moral excellence. 
thinking about this passage. And it hit me that this second half where Paul says, this is your lane, it's all about Jesus. That's what's interesting. It's not like Paul is telling them that there's a code of conduct that you're supposed to meet. There's a set of rules that you're supposed to hold to. There's a set of practices you have to give yourself to. It's fascinating to me that Paul just simply says it's all about Jesus. That Jesus is central, pivotal. He's the target. And I think sometimes we have to remind ourselves this is what the target is. It is to live like Jesus, talk like Jesus, love like Jesus, sound like Jesus. To treat others like Jesus treated other people. Jordan Peterson, who I think is one of the brilliant minds of our generation right now, says this, that Jesus is the highest and best example of human life. The best and highest example of human life. Nobody even comes close to Jesus. Not Socrates, not Aristotle, not Plato, not Buddha. No great great person that we could ever think of will ever come close to Jesus. That Jesus somehow embodies the very highest and the most noble facets of what it means to be a human being. And Jaroslav Pelagin, who is the uh, professor of history at Yale University, writes and says this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull out from history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Indeed, how much would be left? Jesus has had an impact upon the world that is untold. Because of Jesus, children would be thought of differently. Because of Jesus, women would be thought of differently in our culture. Because of Jesus, the infirm, the weak, the destitute, the malformed, the enslaved would be treated differently because of who Jesus was. Educational systems would be revolutionized. Systems of jurisprudence would be radically transformed. Relationships would be started and worked through in an entirely different kind of way because of Jesus. I think of this story that in the book of John, chapter 5, and where Jesus is debating with the Pharisees uh, over some theological points. And as they are debating through this situation, Jesus finally turns and he says to them, he says, you guys search the scriptures, and in them you think you have life. But it's these that speak about me. All this stuff you're reading about in the Old Testament, all of these uh, uh, stories and everything, they're designed to point you toward me. Not toward a set of rules, not toward a philosophy of life, toward a living, breathing Savior. They're supposed to point you toward me. You think those are going to give you life? They're not. Those are supposed to point you to me. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is transformed before three of his disciples' eyes, God speaks out of heaven. He says, this is my beloved son. You follow him. You follow him. In the restoration of Peter, in John chapter 21, Jesus does a little bit of the same thing. As he begins to restore Peter, Peter asks a question of him. And Jesus simply responds and he says, don't worry about that. You follow me. And the word me in the Greek text is put first in the sentence for emphasis. Me, you follow. See, I think this is where drift occurs with us. 
It's almost like we, we come to know Jesus, but then we move on from Jesus. It's like he's too elementary for us for some reason. Like then we start getting into theology or maybe we get into spiritual gifts or maybe we get into strategic planning or maybe we get into the Enneagram or maybe we get into something else and that all of a sudden takes first place for us. We're really into that particular subject matter. And what happens is we just move away from Jesus. And I think that that's where a lot of this drift occurs. Paul voices the same concern in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 with the Corinthians, where he simply says this, I am concerned for you, he says, that some people would lead you away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Wow. Would lead you away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And sometimes I think, man, when everything is said and done, maybe it's just time to get back to Jesus. Maybe it's just time to get back to Jesus. It's like that radio station slogan, all Jesus, all the time. And I think this, if you want to stay in your lane, you really want to honor Jesus with your life, and you want to pursue a life of moral excellence, lean into Jesus. He is our life, our breath, our destiny, our target. One of the things that I've been doing over the last 10 years is I realized I had drifted away. And as I sensed that in my own life, I began to say, you know what, I need to to refocus on Jesus. I need to recapture the sense of who Jesus really is. I'd gotten into all this other stuff. And so for the last 10 years, I've just been trying to reread the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. Building a library that's just focused just around Jesus, who he was, what he did, what he taught. Looking at the Sermon on the Mount, looking and taking a detailed study of the book of Mark, the uh, New Testament book of Mark, putting together tools in my library, and then just taking the time to really just meditate on Jesus as I meet with him personally. And man, it has been so helpful. When I became a a follower of Jesus at the age of 18, I remember those first couple years that that's what it was like. I was just following him. And there was something beautiful and easy and something that was really exciting about doing that. But then you kind of grow and you get into other stuff and you get into other stuff and you just find yourself drifting on away. And I think, man, if we really want to stay in our lane, it is about focusing our lives around our Savior, our leader, our Lord Jesus. There's a final thing that Paul talks about here, and that's it's very, very helpful for us to remember our new identity in Christ as well. That's kind of part and parcel of what it means to to live with Jesus. But look at Ephesians 4, verse 22. He says this in further description. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and then to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in the true righteousness, excuse me, in true righteousness and holiness. Paul spells out this dynamic in three movements that takes place here, three to-do statements. And what I want you to see in this, these three statements is what we're going to call an identity exchange. Do we exchange identities? We put off an old self and we put on a new self being constantly renewed, and that's that middle phrase, constantly renewed in the spirit of our minds. 
So I want to illustrate this for you, if I can, in a fun way. I'm kind of one of the pastors here on staff that really enjoys doing visuals and using props. And so uh, I want to do that as we're talking here tonight. Um, And I'll I'll preface it as I tell the story. When, uh, When I was nine years old, I began to play baseball. I joined Little League. And, uh, and the first team that I was put on was a team named the Dodgers. The Dodgers. And thereafter, the Dodgers became my team, the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I rooted for them. And I loved their great heroes, Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale and all of the old guys. And, and man, and I was a fan and I rooted for them and I followed them. And it was just, it was wonderful. And from the ages of nine up until the age of about 20, I was a Los Angeles Dodgers fan. And then I saw the light. I thought about all the darkness that was surrounding me being part of the Los Angeles Dodgers, being a fan of the Los Angeles Dodgers, the corruption that had taken place in the Dodger organization. And all of a sudden, God transferred me at the age of 20 or so into the kingdom of light. And I took off the Dodger jersey And I was not a fan of the Dodgers any longer. And instead, we moved to the Bay Area, and I started following a different team. So I took off that jersey, and I identified myself with an entirely new team, the San Francisco Giants. And that was the team that I adopted, and it's the team I still root for today. I am a Giant fan. I could not wear that jersey to the Giants' stadium. Man, I would be in all kinds of trouble. And you know what? It's not my identity anymore. This is my identity. I've been transferred into the kingdom of light. And now I follow the giants. That's a little bit what Paul's talking about. There's an old part of us that is still around. It hasn't completely disappeared. Even though we have died to it, we no longer have to follow it. Sometimes it just kind of walks around just making itself available. And Paul talks about the fact that what we need to do is we need to lean into our new identity constantly. We need to lean into who Jesus has made us, who we are in him, what he has done for us, and that that has formed our new identity. We've been baptized into Jesus. We have been submerged into him. We wear Jesus. And our identity is wrapped up in him. So as Paul begins that process, really, of talking to the Ephesians through this, he says, man, this is not your lane over here. The lane of those who don't don't live with God, who are outside the circle of faith, who live in darkness and futility of mind. Instead, he said, this is your lane that is being created according to God in the righteousness and the holiness of the truth. And I think if we can do these three things, if we can remind ourselves of what our lives were like without Jesus, and then remember that it's Jesus that is our identity and that we are to build our moral excellence around him, follow him, listen to him. And then if we can lean into our new identity that Jesus has given to us, I think that we will be the kind of people who will stay off that which is not our lane, and we will actually be people who stay in our lane. So could I take a few moments and pray for us today? And, uh, and if you just want to pray along with me as you're here, I want to pray over you uh, as we're here. Join me as we pray.
Oh, Lord, thank you that you have designed for us to live lives of moral excellence and that when we do this, Lord, we become a shining example to the world of lives that can be changed and transformed by the power and the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're so glad that we get to walk with you. We're so glad that you have given us a new identity, a new purpose, and a new meaning. Lord, whatever has been done in this message, I just pray that those who are, who are watching and listening out there would identify one thing that's really spoken to them. Maybe write it down, maybe repeat it to yourself. The one thing that maybe has stuck out in your mind tonight as you have watched and listened. Oh Lord, I pray that you would take that truth and that you would drive it home deeply into every single one of our hearts. Whatever it has been, Lord, would you allow us to begin to take action upon those things? And by the power of your spirit, Lord, enable us to live out our lives in relationship to you. We're so glad that you have made us your agents of change in the world. And Lord, we want to represent you well. So would you enable us to do exactly that as we leave here, this place today? Do the work that you're going to do in us. We trust you fully for this, Jesus. And we pray all of this in your name. And everybody said, amen.